Hello, everyone. I'm Esther Pan Sloan, Head of Partnerships, Policy, and Communications at the United Nations Capital Development Fund. Welcome to Season 2 of Capital Musings, UNCDF's podcast, where we are focusing on fresh ideas and new innovations that serve our mandate to make finance work for the poor in the world's least developed countries. You can find our Capital Musings podcast on Apple, Spotify, or our website, www.uncdf.org. Today, we're glad to be speaking with Janine Firpo, a writer, angel investor, impact investor, social entrepreneur, and author of the new book, Activate Your Money, Invest to Grow Your Wealth and Build a Better World. Janine, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be talking to the UNCDF as I know you and your organization well and have a lot of admiration for you. We'll get into how you know us so well, which is always very nice to hear because many people have not heard of us at all. But let's start at the beginning. Please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What did you study? And what led you to focus on women and investing? I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. My family actually goes as far back as the late 1800s. My original ambition in life was to be a doctor, actually. And so I went to college fully expecting that that's what I was going to be but fell into marine biology while I was in college. And so I went to graduate school and studied marine biology, expected to get my PhD and be an academician for most of my life. But as things happen, things changed. And I realized during my master's program that wasn't really what I wanted to do. And once again, I fell into something else. I fell into the computer industry in the late 1970s early 1980s, before there were really personal computers. And so I spent the first 15 years of my career in high tech in the Silicon Valley. And then in 1995, I quit a job that I was working at and I went on a four month, four and a half month solo backpacking journey through sub-Saharan Africa. And that trip really changed everything for me because I saw poverty there like I had never seen it before. I was fascinated by the countries I was traveling through, and I just wanted to spend more time in them. And I also wanted to make sure that my life was being used for a meaningful purpose. And I decided I wanted to find a way to work in developing countries. And that then led me on a 20-year career in international development, using technology and business thinking to try to solve social problems and poverty in developing countries. And early in that part of my career, I was working at Hewlett Packard. The dot-com had happened, explosion had happened, and it had crashed. And Carly Fiorina, who was the CEO of Hewlett Packard at that time, was looking at a way that she could have her company do well financially at the same time it was doing good for the poor. And I was asked to figure out how we could do something in the financial services sector. So that led me to microfinance, which I had never heard anything about before, which for those who don't know it, is the act of giving small loans to poor people, usually women, to help bring them out of poverty. So we started doing experiments in the early 2000s, looking at how tech could really help scale microfinance and bring more efficiency to microfinance. So that's really what got me started, is looking at these issues around technology and then getting involved in financial services as they relate to poor women. So there are so many fascinating things about this story, Janine. First, that you were there really at the dawn of the computer you know, industry in the early 80s in Silicon Valley. That must have been fascinating. 
And then the fact that Carly Fiorina, who later became a presidential candidate and a very prominent figure in the United States, played this role and that Hewlett Packard, which is a computer company, was making microfinance loans. I didn't know any of that. No, it is fascinating. And so around the time that Carly was doing this, C.K. Promelot had written a book called The Fortune at the Bottom of the Pyramid, which really made a case for the fact that you could make money serving the poor, right? Prior to that, there really hadn't been much thought about that. The poor were always thought about as a non-viable market, non-viable customer base. Microfinance was 100% grant-based. Although when I got involved in microfinance in the early 2000s, there was a growing conversation around whether or not it was possible to commercialize microfinance. And at that time, about 100 million people were being served. We knew it helped bring people out of poverty. But McKinsey did a study and realized that 2.5 billion people needed this kind of service. Now, there's no way that you were going to get grant money to serve that kind of 10 to 15% growth, right? And so we started thinking about what role could tech play in this. And so I actually put together a consortium while I was at Hewlett Packard that included players like Grameen. Grameen was in it. Axion was in it. Finca was in it. There were some consultants in it. And we started looking at this question together of how could technology play a role? And we started to talk about something that we called human ATMs, which is the idea of having small merchants serve as cash-in, cash-out points for the exchange of currency at the local level in these communities. People laughed at us. They thought we were crazy. This was like in 2002, before the advent of mobile money. And we were playing around with point-of-sale devices and smart cards in Uganda, actually, is where we were doing some of our earliest experiments in 2005, 2006. And it proved to be very difficult, actually, for a lot of reasons. And it really was not working with smartphones and point-of-sale devices. And the technology as it stood then was not successful. But what was going on simultaneously is that Vodacom was doing experiments in Kenya with microfinance institutions using the cell phone. And that proved not to be successful either. But what did come out of those early experiments was the realization that people were using their phones to move money. And that movement of money back and forth, Vodacom, when they weren't having success with the microfinance players, stopped their work, backtracked, look at what was working, what was the movement of money, retrenched and came out in 2007 with a product called M-Pesa, which was about money transfer. And that led to mobile money. And what's so exciting about that is that part of the development of M-Pesa was from, I believe it was UK grant funding, exactly. right? And then that this whole atmosphere of innovation, it's great that you've sketched out the process for us of how many experiments had to fail before something took off. And that must have been very similar or familiar to you from Silicon Valley. But I think most people don't think about development as that same iterative process that you have to try things many times because things will fail. Or it takes a really long time. People in development know about Paul Farmer, who's doing a lot of work in healthcare. They now know about Gary White, who's doing a lot of work with water, clean water. What they don't know is that both of these gentlemen 
struggled for 15 plus years behind the scenes until that what they did finally took off. And it's not just that case with nonprofits. It's that case with for-profits too. So people love the stories about how a particular company just all of a sudden, you know, was this explosive success. Those are very few. Most explosive successes, when you look at them, are really stories of people having worked for 10, 15 years or more, or a lot of experimentation that didn't really work, but kept giving insights that ultimately led to the explosive success, right? So there's a lot more to the story than most people realize. And it's also great that you're stressing the fact that the way we look at business and new business growth has to be the way we look at development and advances in development as well, that they're based on many years of patient work funded by somebody who's not making money back to get to the point where developments then are possible. And I'm also glad that you raised Axion because Axion was really a pioneer because they did take, I think it was a Mexican bank public, Capartamos. Right. Mm-hmm. And that was fantastic for the industry to say that microfinance could become profitable and that people suddenly started coming into this industry with commercial money instead of just development funds, as you pointed out. Well, and that is what led to impact investing, actually. So the success that microfinance had led to impact investing. And we hope to see that similar kind of scale in impact investing. So as we turn to impact investing, Janine, please tell us about your book and what it tells us about this field. All right. Well, what's really interesting about impact investing is that what we think of as impact investing today grew out of a lot of conversations that started happening in the Silicon Valley in part as some of the early dot-com pioneers started liquidating their businesses or putting their businesses on the public market and started to become wealthy. They were young, they had ambition still, and they had a lot of wealth. And they started looking at, well, what can we do with this money? At the same time, microfinance was showing that you could actually invest in formally non-profit businesses, turning them profitable and actually making a successful return on that money. So much money flowed into microfinance at that time that there was too much. And the money started going from the top tier microfinance institutions to less institutions. And they didn't work as well in terms of returning that financial return. So people started looking at other businesses and how could we start to bring business sensibility and money to the social sector and social problems and solve new kinds of problems in the world. So that's really where impact investing started. And because I had been so involved in these kinds of issues for such a long time and I was living in the Bay Area, I got involved in a lot of those conversations and I watched what became the impact investing space grow. About 10 or 12 years now, it's probably been, I was at one of the conferences that was about this issue. And at that time, the investors who were building the impact investing space were very high net wealth individuals, or they were institutional organizations, or they were foundations. And I looked at what was going on. I was very excited about this kind of investing. And I thought, I made this huge shift in my career. I jumped out of high tech just as the internet was taking off. I could have ridden that train. I chose not to. I took pay cuts so that I could live my values and do the work that mattered to me. And my money 
was invested in things that were counter to the work that I was doing. And so I made a personal commitment all those years ago to figure out how to invest all of my own money in a way that aligned with my values, even though I was not of the ilk of people who were doing it at the time. And so I've been on that journey. I've had different financial advisors helping me. None of them got me where I wanted. So three years ago, I retired from my international development career and I started working on this myself. And I realized we had gotten to the point where in virtually every asset class, there are values aligned investments that anyone can make. There is also a 20-year track record now that shows that if you invest this way, you do not have to give up financial returns. And I realized it was time to bring this message to a mass market. It was time to diversify impact investing, demystify it, and really start to help other people understand how to do this. Plus, I learned that 86% of women and 95% of millennials want to invest their money in ways that create a better world. They just don't know how to do it. So I started to write a book and I focused it on women because women have not been included in this conversation to date. That's fantastic. And I know in other venues and other conversations, I often run into women who have had the same experience where they ask their financial advisor, who's invariably a man named John, for more impact investments, and he brushes them off or dismisses them or talks to their husband or says you'll give up return, and they end up choosing somebody who's not John. So I'm glad that you chose yourself instead and that you're making all of your hard-won knowledge available to other people. So... In the book, you encourage women to educate themselves on finance and socially conscious investing with a women-centered approach. What is that? So what you said about John is really true. In fact, 83% of financial advisors are men and men invest differently than we do. So we care about our financial return. It's not that we don't. But we have other priorities as well. We want to know what our money is doing. We have goals for our money. And those things really help drive our decisions about how we invest. We also have different approaches to risk than men do. And we also like to learn in communities. So men tend to do their investing alone. That's kind of been how all of us have been taught that we're supposed to invest. You go learn this or you go have a financial advisor. I actually am a huge advocate of women learning in clubs. And so the way the book was written, it's actually written as a tool that you can use alone, or it is a tool that you can use with a club and with your friends. And we've actually created a 13 module curriculum that goes along with the book that you can use to run clubs and learn this kind of information together. So the whole book is written from a woman's perspective. It is targeting women. All the examples speak to women. And so I just felt that we needed to fill a big gap in what's available for women in terms of investing. What books that are written for us or articles that are written for us, I just read this on Elvis the other day, the vast majority of them that are written for women focus on a saving money or getting better pay at our jobs or not spending as much. But the majority of what's written for men is about growing wealth and investing. So it's time for books for women to be focused on growing wealth and investing, too. And 
part of what will get us excited is knowing that money is doing great stuff for our communities, for other women, for a safe, sustainable planet, and so on. That's fantastic. And I love the idea of women's investing clubs like book clubs, right? Because it gives you a chance to gather in a group. There's less intimidation, perhaps, with unfamiliar subject matter. I remember reading somewhere that a woman had posted, I'd like to learn more about IRAs, but I just can't do all that nodding and smiling. Could someone just give me some information? (laughs) Because there has been a, a historical sense that if you want to learn about something financial, you have to have somebody talk at you for a really long time and then try to figure it out. So it's great that you are breaking down some of those barriers. You also mentioned the importance of finding supportive communities and sharing knowledge between groups and even different generations of women. So tell us more, please, about these values-aligned multi-generational investment clubs. Sure. So one of the things that I'm doing is I am actually partnering with an organization called Invest for Better. It is a nonprofit organization. They've been around for three years. And they have been actually helping women, setting them up as leaders, investment clubs, and helping them understand how to set the clubs up, how to run the clubs, and giving them content to actually make those clubs work. And the goal of those clubs is to help the women not only learn how to invest, but to invest in ways that align with our values. And so they are going to be using the buck going forward as a foundational element for those clubs. And they're going to be using the coursework that was developed for the the book as well. And so I'm going to be working with them to modify that content to really work even better for the Invest for Better clubs. And those clubs are available for anyone who wants to create one. We have a couple of cohorts that happen every year with the leaders of the clubs. And we're really looking to scale these clubs and make this information available to as many women as possible. That's really fantastic. And I feel all the surveys say that women are actually quite good at managing their money in the sense that they get very steady returns and they don't overtrade and they don't panic on news that comes out. But many women are not confident about their ability to manage money. So it's really fantastic that you have these very pragmatic tools to make women feel more comfortable with these issues, which are, of course, so critically important to their own well-being as well as the impact they can have on the world around them. You're absolutely right. In fact, only 9% of women believe that they're better investors than men. But when we do invest, we outperform. And one of the things that people can do that takes a little bit of effort, but it's not that hard, is think about your bank. So one of the challenges that I have with the term impact investing is that there's an implicit belief that it means that the impact you're having is positive. But the truth of the matter is that every single dollar you have invested, and I think of our bank accounts as investments, is having an impact. The question is whether that impact is something that aligns with your values or is actually working against your values, right? So when we think about our banks, many of us bank at these big banks, we don't even know what they do with our money. We really don't. And We often hear about certain large banks who are doing things that are actually counter to the goals that many of us have. And a lot of those banks, their money is going into the financial economy, which is for many of us this unknown, strange thing. Whereas what I think we really want to see is money going into the real economy, which is our local communities. And so one shift you can make is taking your bank deposits and putting them into a local community bank. That is, and we're coming kind of full circle here because what those local community banks do is they often provide loans to women 
who are trying to start small businesses who can't get the capital from a traditional bank, or they are providing loans to underserved and unbanked people who need the money for school loans or for car loans or to create a better life. So we had the same problem that I spent 20 years trying to solve in developing countries is right here at home as well. And these community banks are a great way to address that problem. So I have moved all of my savings and checking accounts to local banks in my own community. And they tell me about the people that they are helping. And it really makes me happy. And what I've found is my money is as safe because these places are federally insured, just like the big banks. They pay about the same return, which is close to nothing. Banks don't pay us anything. Their fees are often not as bad. The customer service is way better. I mean, I actually call my bank and they know who I am. I get a person. I can even talk to the same person from time to time. I don't have to go into a 20-minute queue on an 800 number waiting to talk to some anonymous person. So I really am a huge advocate of community banks, and it's really easy to find one in your area. That's great advice, Janine, and super pragmatic. I think in the same way that many people are turning away from large grocery chains for buying their fruits and vegetables and going to farmer's markets, it's a very similar argument, right? Instead of going to a massive international corporation who maybe doesn't have gender diversity on their boards and maybe doesn't have great policies on women and maybe doesn't offer maternity leave, you can go to your local bank and deal with the human and try to make sure that those values align with your own, which is great advice. Just one other thing to realize. So another reason that I have focused on women is that a lot of people don't realize that by 2030, women are going to control the majority of money in this country. So what control means is that we have the potential to make the choices about how that money is invested and what that money is doing. Currently, we're not taking on that responsibility ourselves. We advocate it. We give it to somebody else, often a man. But if enough of us took that control, if we learned how to become confident investors, and then if we put our money to work in the things that we care about, including uplifting other women, we can literally change the economy to a more sustainable and equitable economy because power flows where money goes and the money is in our hands. So we have the opportunity to make some decisions about the types of businesses that get our money, the CEOs that get our money, the gender of the CEOs that get our money, the banks that get our money, et cetera, et cetera. And the timing couldn't be more relevant to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, which are also having 2030 as a target, and for which so many of the goals are really tied to this issue of gender, right? The equal access to identity, to land ownership, to inheritance rights, to finance. All of these issues are so pressing for women around the world. And as you say, if there are women in the United States or Europe or Japan who have access to resources... Why wouldn't they use them to lift up other women around the world if they could? Exactly. Well, I'm so glad you brought up the SDGs because I actually talk about them in the book. And the reason that I talk about them in the book is because if you're going to be a values-aligned investor, then you have to know what your values are. And I actually think the SDGs are becoming a de facto standard for this type of investing. More and more investment opportunities that are showing up and say, these are the SDGs that we are adhering to. 
And what I did personally is I picked five because I realized I can't spread myself that thin. And so I picked five of the SDGs and all of my investments and all of my philanthropy are now being targeted to those five SDGs. So it's gender diversity is one. I've also selected sustainable cities and communities, climate action, water, equity. That's so great, Janine. So I was on the team that helped negotiate the SDGs. So I am personally very thrilled that it's had such an impact and that it's even affected your personal decision-making. And I think what's so great is that you have taken a strategic and holistic approach for both your investing and your philanthropy. And one thing that has surprised us here at UNCDF is that many very wealthy people give money in quite a haphazard way compared to how they earned it, right? They're very strategic and focused about how they earn their money through their businesses, but then they give it away based on who they had a conversation with or what hobbies their children had, that there really seems to be a demand for a much more strategic way of looking at the whole spectrum of finance that an individual has at their disposal from philanthropy all the way to investments that need to produce a commercial return. I think that's absolutely true. And it's why there's a chapter in the book on philanthropy. And one of the things that I point out there is that there is charity and there's philanthropy and they actually have different meanings. So charity comes from the French and philanthropy comes from the Greek. And charity, when we think about that, what tends to be is the kind of reaction that you're talking about. It's off the hip. Somebody tells you something, you see a particular thing happening and you give money. Philanthropy is specifically supposed to be strategic. And so I talk about creating a strategy and I've actually done that with my own philanthropic giving. And I'll tell you, it makes it so much better because all of us are bombarded by people who want us to give to their cause, right? And I can now say to them with a clean conscience and a clean heart, you know what? I really love and support what you're doing. But I have made decisions about the things that I give to the same organization year on year because that way I actually have a relationship with that organization and I actually see the results of the work that I'm doing. I feel more connected to my philanthropy when I had a strategy around it. And it also gives me a way to gracefully say no to things that I might not want to give to but then I would have previously felt guilty about if I didn't. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, money and time are precious resources. Everybody has limited amounts of them. And so it makes sense to give yourself a framework where you can say no to the things that are not important to you. And I know that many philanthropic organizations and not only UNCDF really appreciate recurring donations because that's a source of income you can rely on. So for charities, it's great to have donors to come back because then you know that they'll be with you in the long term and they support your overall goals. Absolutely. How can readers use the information in your book, Janine, to address the gender wage gap and the wealth gap between men and women? You've talked about the fact that women will control a majority of the money in the United States by 2030, but they probably won't earn a majority of the money if the gender wage gap statistics continue in the way that they have. So it's a great question. I mean, when we think about the wealth gap or the gender wage gap, we generally focus on the wage part and how much women are earning relative to men. We don't generally focus on the wealth part. And part of the reason that there's a wealth gap is because women are not willing to invest in the same way. In fact, according to Elvest, 
we on average keep 70 cents on the dollar in cash. So what that means is not only is our money not growing, it's we're losing it year on year because our cash doesn't even keep up with inflation, right? So part of this whole process and part of what I'm about helping women become more confident investors is to help them grow that wealth and to help them feel confident enough in their skills to grow that wealth and to help them realize that they can build that confidence through experimenting, using small bits of money to try things and experiment, and through taking away the taboo around the subject and to start to talk about it, to start talk about it in trusted, safe spaces. There's a whole different feeling, I will tell you, in talking about your money with a group of women than there is in talking about your money when there's even one man. I kid you not. So when we start to talk about our money as women, and this doesn't mean having to divulge how much you're worth, because I get that that's a thing that makes women, everybody uncomfortable, but you can have very meaningful, rich conversations about your money and about the way you're investing and the kinds of returns you're getting and what's working and what's not working for you without ever divulging that. You can feel very safe to ask the quote unquote stupid questions that are embarrassing. The other women are like, well, no, it's not stupid. And we're here to help you. It's a very uplifting, supportive way to learn. And you can share the work because figuring out what to invest in takes effort. You can read one of these books that tells you to put everything in an index fund and just call it good for the next 30 years. That's not the smartest strategy in my view. So if you're going to move beyond that strategy, then you actually have to put some work into this. And from my view, it's more like a marathon than a sprint, right? It's a lifelong learning. It's a skill that you build and you can share that skill building and you can share the work with other women and it makes the whole thing way more fun. And you do it with a little wine and food and it's even better. And I love how you're bringing this new topic, which is investing that women maybe don't feel so comfortable with right now, but it's built on a very traditional structure, which is a group of women, right? Getting together to share information about sewing or baking or childcare. We as UNCDF built a lot of savings groups for rural women in poor communities so they could pool their money together. So it's a model that works really well for women to have solidarity in a group to work with on any goal. And even in something like baking, if you were a novice baker and then you had a master baker tell you some tricks about how to have lighter cakes, that would be really helpful. And you wouldn't have to go through it all yourself in the same way, I'm sure, with investing that somebody could give you tips. Exactly. Exactly. And we're through Invest for Better and the combination of what they're doing with my book is we're giving you the curriculum to run those clubs. And we start you at the beginning. We start you with what is the stuff and why would you care? And we start you with thinking about your money stories because all of us have them. We have histories around money and we don't even realize how those histories are impacting the way we're making decisions today. So we point you to tools to take tests where you can figure out your financial archetype and then you can talk about that with your girlfriends. So we start you there and then we talk to you about your values and we actually, part of the curriculum is the SDGs. So I'm delighted to know that you were part of putting them together. I think that they're remarkable. I watched this industry 
talking to really wealthy people about their values and they would talk to them about things like what matters to you, integrity, community, honesty, etc. those kinds of things. And those values are super important. I don't disagree and being clear on them is helpful, but they don't help you make investment decisions. The SDGs do. I'm thrilled to hear that because of course they weren't intended that way. They're a development agenda, but they were the first time the UN addressed the private sector financial community as the stakeholder and as an equal partner in achieving development outcomes. And I think really the first time that governments around the world treated the private sector as a necessary partner in achieving this global development progress. So we've seen a huge change in the UN just in the 10 years or so that I've been around here in the attitude towards private sector actors, financial players, fund managers, investment funds, that the UN has really embraced the potential that private capital has to help accelerate progress on development goals. Whereas in the past, I think there was a little bit more hesitancy right. about the private sector. And individuals. So when you think about companies that do really well and companies that retain employees, one of the things that's important to employees is knowing that they are part of a bigger mission or a mission, a bigger goal, right? So if as an individual investor, that these are global standards that governments and businesses and multilateral organizations and all of these different players and actors around the globe are working to create change around them, if you are putting your money behind them, then you know you're part of a bigger mission, right? It isn't just about you and your own money. Your money is actually doing something that makes you feel great. And it's doing something that is part of a much, much bigger set of objectives that are global in nature. And then 193 countries ratified cool to be part of that. Yeah, it's amazing, actually. I think that we could get everybody to agree on anything and it was not easy. So we're thrilled that everybody's getting behind it. I also think it's a really nice, positive statement and symbol in a difficult time. It always seems to be a difficult time, but when there is so much dissent and challenge around the world, it's really nice to have something that everybody does agree on, that we can work and hope for a better future. So Janine, you are an adventure traveler. Please tell us about some of your favorite places in the world. Lord, that's a hard one for me because I have literally loved every country that I've been to. But I must say there are a couple that really stand out for me for different reasons. So one country that's close to my heart is India. I found a certain part of my spiritual path there. I also love Italy. I'm of Italian heritage. And so I have a fondness for Italy. I love Spain because I walk the Camino de Santiago, so I'm just making a plug for that. If you've never heard of it, it's a 500-mile walk across the north of Spain. It's a religious pilgrimage that's amazing. And I have been blown away by Iceland and want to go back there because it is just absolutely incredible geologically. But I've been to over 80 countries, and I can honestly say I have been mesmerized and enthralled by each and every one of them. Well, I love it. And we, we wish more Americans were as adventurous as you are because so many Americans don't have the chance to travel overseas. And of course, you learn so much when you do. You are not the first guest on the podcast, Janine, who's talked about a trip that really changed their lives, that it was several months or a year where they just took themselves traveling around the world and what they learned there changed the whole direction of their life. 
So I think that's a good recommendation for our listeners to go somewhere they haven't been and try to discover something new. Well, I think two things about travel. One, I think that a lot of people think it's really expensive and that's what keeps them from going. And it's not. If you travel to Africa, to Latin America, to Southeast Asia, to certain parts of the world, and you travel low to the ground, which in my opinion is the way you really get to know the country, you travel on their local conveyances, you travel you don't stay in the finest hotels. You stay in hostels, particularly when you're young. This is such an amazing way to travel. So if you do that, the cost is really low. And the other thing that I think about travel, if you're willing to do this, it's like when I stepped off a plane in a new country, I would let go of all my preconceptions about what was. It's like the doors and the windows of your mind open and a fresh breeze blows through and you can see the world through a different lens and you can recognize that there is really, I mean, one of the things I learned is that there's not really a reality. We all think we live in this reality and that reality just is what's true in the place that you live right now in this point in time. But if you get on a plane and you go somewhere else, their reality is very different than yours. And it's as real to them as yours is to you. And if you roll back the clock 100 years or 500 years in the spot you're standing in, that reality was different too. So it just really helps you realize how much diversity there is and how much value there is in that diversity and beauty and magic in that diversity. Thanks so much, Janine. I think one thing that we learn very quickly working at the United Nations is that everyone has their own context and what's right or wrong or beautiful or ugly or acceptable or not totally depends on context. So we have to be very cautious about making statements or assumptions because they could be completely false somewhere else. So when we are able to arrive at something like the SDGs where everyone does agree and there are these universal values or universal human rights, they're even more precious because we know they're not common. So as we wrap up, Janine, with all your wise words, what one thing would you change if you could in how women relate to money? So what I would love to see is what I call values-aligned investing becoming the de facto way that people invest, that there is no longer this belief that some of your money is there to maximize return and then a small portion of it is there to do good in the world, but that actually every investment you make can maximize return and do good at the same time. That it is not an either or choice. It's a yes and. So we'll be looking for Invest for Better, for women's investing clubs to pop up all around the country and around the world, for women to use your book as a useful guide, and for all the women who will be controlling the resources in the next 10 and 20 years to start making their values evident with the way they use those resources. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us today, Janine. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk to you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you also to our listeners for joining us on UNCDF's podcast, Capital Musings. Once again, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, and our website, www.uncdf.org.